Every morning at the mine, you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip, and everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Even you know that. Wow. Well, that's Jonathan, you know. I mean, that's his namesake, I guess. You know, our heroes are often giants, aren't they? Um, <clears throat> who was our tallest president? Who has been our tallest president? Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, six foot five or six or so. Okay, who was second? George Washington. Who was third? You got it, Trump. And this surprised me, Thomas Jefferson was six two and a half. I don't think of him being that, that big, you know. But of course we know that not all great men or maybe notorious men are necessarily tall. You know, I started off, well I started to say I started off at, at, at five nine and a half. I don't think I was. When I, <laughs> Yeah, my mother uh, probably felt like I was five nine and a half coming out. But, uh, no, I, I think I got up to about five nine nine and a half. I'm probably, you know, this happens, fellas, when you get to be our age. I've shrunk about an inch and a half. So whenever I go to the doctor, I take everything out of my pockets before I step on the scale, <laughs> and then I stand on my tiptoes. Yeah. Alexander the Great and Napoleon. And Winston Churchill were all shorter than I, five foot six. Charlie Chaplin, T.E. Lawrence. Who is T.E. Lawrence? Lawrence of Arabia was five foot five. Beethoven, when he started going deaf, didn't have, didn't have very far to reach the table to put his head. And Mozart and Stravinsky were five four along with Picasso and Houdini. And our shortest president, five foot four. He was our fourth president. So who was that? James Madison. Mahatma Gandhi and the French philosopher, one of those to whom we referred this morning, but not by name, before the French Revolution, Voltaire, five three. The great rational philosopher of the 18th century, Immanuel Kant, and the first man into space. Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, 5'2". We're going down. Genghis Khan, 5'1". One of the great leaders in um, the beginning of the modern state of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, 5 foot, 0 inches. And we'll stop there. You know, the, uh, the title, I think, is obvious why we've chosen it. You know, it wasn't height and it wasn't might. Maybe I should have put that in the title. It wasn't height or might for which God chose David. Had he already proven his might? Sure he had. He was a shepherd and he fought a what? A lion and a bear. But it wasn't because of that. So let's go back and take a look before we look at David tonight. You know, Chris introduced the topic last week. The nation wanted a king. Why did they want a king? Because Samuel's time was running out, and his sons didn't qualify. And the people knew it, and they wanted somebody that could lead them. And God warned them the king someday would 
demand universal conscription. All of their sons and daughters would be in servitude. He would take the best of the land, a concept that we know now today as eminent domain. He would tithe the seed of the land and take that, and he would tithe the wine and also the flocks. And then he would put all of the common folk into servitude. And then later we see it even increasing with Solomon, especially in the building of the temple and all. So this is what's on the horizon. This is more of a long-term prophecy over the life of Israel. Later it became much, much worse. I don't think Saul was all that bad with respect to these things. As, As a matter of fact, initially the kingship showed some promise, even though God had warned that it was going to turn south. Paul, I mean Saul, uh, wrong, wrong fellow, okay. Uh, Saul proved to be something of a disappointment, didn't he? Um, he was a Benjamite son of Kish, and according to the uh, Tanakh, he was from the family under Kish of the Matrites, and he lived in a town called Gibeah. We don't know exactly when he was born, but the best we can calculate, because we think that David became king about 1011 B.C., or so. So you go back 70 years before that, and it would have been about 1081. The reason we know that is because we're told in Scripture that he was 30 years old when he became king, and then later we're told in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching at Pisidian Antioch, he says that he had uh, served 40 years. But there's a dating problem here. I'm not talking about dating between men and women. I'm talking about the dating of his, of his, his birth and his reign. When you look at 1 Samuel 13, it says that Saul reigned two years, and according to the Hebrew text, and the King James Version. And most modern versions insert in italics the word 40 to make it 42 years. And why is that? Uh, there is an assumption by modern scholars that there was probably a scribal error and that 40 was left out because later we, well, we just said, uh, later Paul at Pisidian Antioch said that he ruled 40 years. So they assume that that's a rough number and that, that there's a scribal error here in 1 Samuel 13.1. But I think that King James Version has it right because they translate the verb differently. It wasn't that he ruled 42 years, or ruled two years, it's probably a past present, or a past perfect, that he had ruled by this time. Two years. And that's what it says in the King James Version. So when you come to 1 Samuel 13, we're going to talk a little bit about it tonight, which is roughly probably about 1053 B.C. He has been ruling for a couple of years. So he's got about another 38 years to go. We know that his reign ends documented in 1 Samuel 31 at the end of that book, our book, 1 Samuel, where he is in battle with the Philistines. The Philistines didn't kill him, but he was losing the battle, and he knew that he was going to be captured, and then he decided to fall on his sword. And what we don't know about it until the next chapter, that is in 2 Samuel, a man comes to David and said that he assisted in killing King Saul wasn't his armor-bearer because his armor-bearer fell on his sword, so he, he couldn't report to David. So he died then on the field of battle at Mount Gilboa against the Philistines. There's a promising appearance, uh, beginning for the reign. He had a striking appearance 
The scripture tells us literally that he was the handsomest man in all the realm. He had Elvis beat by a long shot. And he was tall. He was a head above the shoulders of all of the other Israelites. Now, we don't know exactly how all the, uh, tall the other Israelites. We, we don't know how tall David was. But the average height probably about this time was somewhere about five foot five. So I'm guessing that, that Saul was probably, how, do, how tall do you think he was? Maybe six feet or so. Nothing like Goliath that David's going to face later. Most versions of the Old Testament say that he was six cubits in a hand, which would make Goliath how tall? Nine feet and a half. Wow. And that's what David's going to go up against as a five and a half foot man. But Saul was tall, he was handsome, and he was God's choice. This is signified by God having Samuel anoint him. And then what happened after that? The Spirit of God came upon Saul. And what did he do? He prophesied. And it became a parable amongst the people. They said, it is Saul, or does Saul prophesy amongst the people? He had military success. He fought immediately. He fought and defeated the Ammonites. And so he was a hero. He was very popular. He was the people's choice, even though they had not known about him earlier when Saul then presented him to the people. But he had some character flaws. You begin to see these even as early as the 13th chapter, even before David's anointing. You know, he's had 330,000, 300,000 from Israel and 30,000 from Judah to go into battle earlier. But he pairs it down. He pairs it down when he goes to battle with the Philistines down to just 3,000. And I don't know why he did that. And he limited it only to Israelite tribes because he is from the northern part. He's from Israel. And perhaps one of the flaws that we see in Saul at this point is overly self-confident. Maybe overly self-reliant. And who won the first battle then against the uh, Philistines then in 13th chapter? It was his son Jonathan. And who took the credit? Well, it was his general. Jonathan was his general. So he takes the credit and he publishes throughout the land that he has defeated this small army. But then what happens? When the Philistines rally and they surround the Israelites, he is not able to keep the troops in order. I don't know why. I guess probably because they were facing overwhelming odds with, with iron chariots, equivalent to our modern tanks facing them out there. But he was incapable of rallying the troops to hold fast and they began to melt away and to hide in holes and caves. We find a little bit later that he was a little bit rash in his military decision-making. Uh, he wanted to be completely devoted to the Lord. That was his reason for doing this and dependent on the Lord in battle. And so he told all of his men before battle to fast. And he took them up, made them, had them make a pledge to fast and not to eat anything before going into battle. And who violated that pledge? his own son Jonathan, not because he intentionally violated it, but because he didn't know about it. And Jonathan then <laughs> rather rebuked his father when his dad chastised him. And he said, look, when I ate it, my eyes were brightening and I was strengthened. What he was saying was, dad, you know, you made the wrong choice. He's very impatient. 
There were times when he didn't wait on the Lord, especially when Samuel told him to. After David was anointed, we also find some character flaws, obviously. The moment that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David, what does the Spirit of the Lord do? He departs Saul. And after that, we see that, that he is possessed by a spirit of jealousy and envy and paranoia. He becomes very vindictive and murders the uh, priests at Nob who have disobeyed him. And even near the end of his life, we find him consulting the spiritual medium, the witch of Endor, to find out what his future is going to be. And he's not happy when he finds out what Samuel tells him when he is raised. So there are a lot of character flaws here, but in, the, in, in two, two instances specifically that sets up the story today. 1 Samuel 13, he forfeits his dynasty. He forfeits two things. In chapter 13, he forfeits the dynasty. In chapter 15, he forfeits his own kingship. And in 13, Samuel has told him before this that he is to go to Gilgal and to wait for him there to prepare for the big battle against the large Philistine army. And so he goes there and he waits and he waits and he waits. He's supposed to wait seven days and Samuel has not shown up. And the men are melting away. He's losing control. And so you know what he did. He decided to offer the sacrifice himself. He does a burnt offering instead of waiting for God's priest and prophet Samuel to come. And when Samuel arrives, of course, he rebukes him. He rebukes him for not obeying God, the directives that God had given Samuel. And as a result, then, God, through Samuel, tells Saul that his kingdom will not endure. And what I understand that to mean is that his legacy is not going to continue. Bottom line, Jonathan's not going to become king, even though it's not explicitly said there. And then one of the great quotes from all of the Old Testament, and it's a hinge point around tonight's story, is that God says through Samuel that God is now going to look for a man. What? What kind of man? A man after his own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. So he has forfeited his legacy. And then later in 1 Samuel 15... God has commanded him to attack the Amalekites, to exterminate them one and all, top to bottom, young and old, the whole kit and caboodle, to take no spoil whatsoever. And of course, we know that the reason for this was that God did not want them intermarrying and mixing with the Amalekites and, and tainting uh, his priesthood. And so, what happened? Saul defeats them, pretty mercilessly puts everybody to death, Except for the king, he spares king, King Agag. And he saved the very best of the flock for what purpose, he said, for sacrifice to the Lord. And of course, when the Lord heard that, he then rebuked Saul and he rejected him as king. His kingship was not going to last. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we have a dilemma. Even though he is filling the role of king, we know that his time is near an end. Well, not near an end, but it's going to come to an end. And the Lord needs to provide a solution. So that's the background for this story. So if you would turn to the text for tonight, 1 Samuel 16. The first five verses show that the Lord provides a solution. <clears throat> There are three problems behind this. Israel needs the right kind of king, not just any king, and not just the people's choice. 
Samuel needs to stop doing something. And Samuel also needs to avoid something. And God then provides the answer to all three of these problems. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and, and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Does he name him? No. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Has he named him yet? No. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So I said there are three problems. The first is that Israel needs the right kind of king. And there are a couple of issues that Samuel has. He needs to stop doing something. What does he need to stop doing? Grieving for Saul. And he also needs to avoid something. What does he need to avoid? Who's going to hunt him down? If he finds out, he needs to avoid Saul's wrath. So the Lord provides a solution, the right kind of king. Well, you know, now, we, now that we've put the prophecy in Genesis 49 into proper context uh, about Judah, the fourth son, through his lineage is going to come the king, we know that the long-lasting legacy of kingship that leads to the Messiah could not come through Saul's family anyway. He was a Benjamite. But we also now it can't come through him because of his disobedience. He has forfeited his, by this time, his legacy and his kingship. We also know this from Genesis 49 and the prophecies about the sons of Jacob that we are told that the scepter will not depart from whom? Judah. But do we really know? Do you think that Judah really knew all that that meant? No. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't even conceiving having a king to begin with at that time. And now that they've had a king, they certainly don't know the implications, the long-term implications of that. So I don't think that it's completely understood what that passage means even yet, but it's about to become clearer, okay? It had to be somebody also that sought the Lord's heart because that's the standard that's raised in 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen. And David was the right person because he sought the heart of God. Ethan, the psalmist in Psalm 89, puts it this way of God. I found David, my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him, the anointed one of God. Another psalmist, Asaph, in Psalm 78 says, So he, that is David, fed them according to the integrity of his heart. You see, he had a heart that sought God. And guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So David is the right one, the psalmist tell us. Once again, in that sermon that we have laid out for us in Acts 13, 
of Paul at Pisidian Antioch, he ties it all together. Retrospectively, he looks back and he said, And when the Lord had removed Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So who he is is a man after his own heart. And the evidence of being a person that seeks the heart of God is very simple. The definition is given here. It is someone who does what? Who does what God wills. It's that simple. God knew exactly whom to choose. Uh, Mark read from Jeremiah 17, a passage that indicates this. It says to trust in the Lord, and then it says that the Lord is a what? Discerner of the heart. Several passages in the Old Testament indicate that. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, says it as well. And so God provides a solution to the first problem, the right kind of king. It's not going to be the people's choice. It's not going to be the popular one. It's not going to be the tall, handsome guy. It's going to be his, and it says here, my own king, his own king. One who seeks the heart of God, who does his will. You see, Saul had been chosen because Samuel was told to anoint him. But a lot of it had to do with his appearance and his popularity, the people's king. God chose David as his king by his standards to accomplish his perfect will. Second thing is Samuel needs to stop grieving over Saul. <laughs> you know, why was Samuel grieving? Probably for several reasons. You see, Samuel's sons were pretty worthless, and he doesn't have a legacy to continue. And even though it doesn't say so, I think that Samuel sort of looks at Saul as a kind of adoptive son, maybe. Certainly someone that can extend his legacy. His sons don't qualify. So for Samuel, Saul, and for the people, for Israel, their hope rests in, in Saul. So it would be normal for him to grieve. There's that loss of relationship. I think that Saul and Samuel at one time were very close. He mentored Saul. Saul was his protege. And if you look at the end of chapter 15, verse 35, we see what's happened by this time. Samuel and Saul, from that point on, after the Lord said that he had forfeited his kingship, and Samuel had to announce that, were permanently alienated. Never saw each other again, not in this life. Now, did Saul see him later? Yeah, yeah, through the medium. So there's a loss of relationship. There's also a loss of power, you know. And I don't think that Samuel was arrogant about this at all. But Samuel, until the rise of Saul, was the most powerful man in Israel. He was the prophet of God. Now the king begins to supplant that. Saul begins to supplant that. He who had previously been the most powerful then had basically uh, lost his power to the political king. And that's one of the problems, I think, that uh, God was warning Israel about. Now the people look to Saul in this shift in popular power. So I think there's a lot of grief going on with, with Samuel here. And God's solution isn't to pat Samuel on the back and say, it's going to be okay, you know. He does what? He chastises him. Even Samuel, the mighty prophet of God, he rebukes. He said, how long are you going to keep grieving? Well, there's a time to mourn. 
and there's a time to stop mourning, isn't there? The Lord had already decided the issue, and he makes it very clear. It's time to move on. But he could still use Samuel in a mighty way. The most powerful man in Israel is not Saul. The most powerful man in Israel right now still is whom? Is Samuel, because he is the one through whom God is going to work. So he restores a bit of the joy to Samuel. He gives him a mission that is not only politically advisable and important, not only militarily necessary for Israel, and certainly to accomplish his will, divinely and providentially, it's important. But it also is a mission that should give Samuel some joy. Why? He tells him to do what? Pull out your horn and fill it with what? With oil. Oil is a symbol of joy. And I'm going to use you to anoint the new king. So it's a symbol of joy to Samuel, but it's also a symbol of joy for Israel. It symbolized the joy of the Lord in renewing Samuel's ministry. Mm. You know, Samuel's life is not yet over. He's getting to be an old man, as some of us are. And I'll say it again. Is God, as long as we draw breath on this earth, as long as we are vertical and breathing, and sometimes horizontal and breathing, can we be used by God? Absolutely. You know, this is kind of a, maybe an overstatement, but perhaps the most important thing that Samuel ever did, there were a lot of important things that he did, if not the most important, one of the top three, at any rate, has yet to occur in his life. At the very, near, the end, near the end of his life, and that is to do what? To anoint not just a king, but to anoint King David. Out of whose lineage is going to come whom? The Messiah. Wow. There's some principles here, I think, in this second problem. The Lord is always in control. We know that. And we must rely on him, not on human conditions and human standards. The Lord calls us to move forward. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to grieve, and there's a time then for us to do what? It doesn't mean that we might not be sad, but we need to move on past our mourning to do the Lord's will. When we're down and out, the Lord can do what? He can restore the joy. And of course, the psalmist says, David, to restore in me the what? The joy of whose salvation? Restoring to me the joy of your salvation. You know, when we think we're finished, God can still use us to do great things. And then there's a third problem. Samuel needed to avoid Saul's wrath. Hmm. Saul was suspicious of Samuel's activities and his travels. You know, he had a circuit. He acted sort of like a, a priest, prophet, judge. And Bethlehem was outside his circuit as judge. And in order to go to Bethlehem, he had to go from his home in Ramah, that was Saul's home, Samuel's home, near Gibeah, which was Saul's home, along this spine road that runs along the mountains to, on the way to Bethlehem. Hmm. Do you think Saul had spies? I'm sure he did. Was Saul going to know that, that Samuel was on the move? You know that he'd know that. What are you doing? And he's got his horn, horn full of anointing oil. That's rather suspicious. So God gives Samuel proper cover for his visit. One commentator I read said that God is on the verge of lying here. God's not on the verge of lying, you know. No. He gave him a proper mission to cover what he was doing, but God also wanted them to celebrate a feast. 
as a part of the celebration of anointing David. You know, so it's, it, God's not being deceptive here. But he does provide covering for his prophet Samuel to perform a sacrificial offering. And then when, when Saul hears of this, it hopefully will remove his suspicions. And he's to take a heifer. And a heifer could be used for a couple of purposes in sacrifice. One, it could be to atone for an unresolved murder. Um, the Old Testament says if there's an unsolved murder, a ritual atonement can be made by the sacrificing of a heifer. And this would probably alarm the people of Bethlehem if he shows up and he's got a heifer and he's going to do this kind of sacrifice because it also means that he is there as a what? As a judge. And he's looking for whoever the murderer was. And after all, you know, Samuel has the power through Yahweh of life and death. And if you have any question about that, go back and look at chapter 15. Agag, the Amalekite king whom Saul spared. After Samuel chastises Saul, then what does he do? He has Agag come to him, and Agag thinks, okay, everything's all right. Everything's copacetic. I'm fine, you know. And Samuel does what? He calls him forward, and he says, your mother is going to be childless. And he does what? He hews him down, strikes him down, and kills him. <laughs> this old man. So he is very powerful, and he has the power of life and death. The Bethlehem is rather fearful. But there's another reason the heifer could be used, and that's to, to involve a, a fellowship feast, an offering for a fellowship feast. We find this in, in 9.13. So Samuel does what? By inviting them then to this feast, and when he says that he comes in peace, it is a fellowship feast, and that's what the heifer is for. And when, this, when the citizens hear this, their anxieties are alleviated, just as Saul's had been alleviated about the cover that God's given him for Saul's wrath. And he does what? He is told, and he does. He sanctifies the guests. They wash their clothes. They refrain from any kind of sexual activity. They have had no contact with the dead body. Those are the requirements for them to come into the feast. And he went into Jesse's house specifically, and he invited them to come and to prepare personally, and he sanctifies them for the feast. And it was a high honor for him to come to Jesse's house to do that. So what do we know about background situation? What about Bethlehem? Beth, Clechem, Beth means what? House, Clechem is what? Bread. House of bread. It's near here where Rachel had died many, many years ago on the way to Bethel after she had given birth to her youngest child. Who was that? Who was Rachel's youngest child? Younger child, she had two. At she had Benjamin. It's here, of course, where Ruth, the Moabitess, comes and she meets Boaz. And she gleans in the fields and they get married and they give birth. She gives birth to Obed, who, of course, was David's grandfather. Six miles south of Jerusalem, in a rather rich but rural part of Judah. And of course we know that it was small because later in Micah, the prophecy that, about Christ's coming, it is the least of all of the villages. So, you know, what's happening here is Samuel's coming to a rather obscure place, and it kind of mirrors what had happened with Saul. Saul came out of obscurity when God picked him near the cultic site at Shiloh. Jesse, who is he? He is a Judahite. He is of the tribe of Judah and the house of Perez, the grandson of the Moabitess. 
and Boaz. Jesse's name is unique in the Old Testament, the only place we find it. And apparently he was a man of substance. He's got eight sons, a couple of daughters, and apparently flocks of some size. So who are Jesse's children? 1 Samuel 13, here, just before this, names three of them. Eliab, Abinadab, or 1 Samuel 16 names them, and Shema. And then we're told that he passes the rest of the seven before David. So, so David apparently is the what? The eighth and the youngest. First Chronicles 2 names six of them. Names Eliab, Amenadab, Shammah, Nathaniel, Radai, and Ozem. Then you got David, that's seven. So some think that maybe one by this time had died and isn't listed. But some think that First Chronicles 2, when it lists Elihu, that that's the eighth and the missing name. But that may be Eliab. So he's got seven brothers. He's the eighth. And he has two sisters, Zeruiah, who becomes the mother of Abishai, Joab, the general, and Asahel. And the other sister is Abigail, the mother of Massa. So now God looks at the heart. This is the other part of the passage, and it will take us to the end. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And they're going to sit down to the meal. So he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy with, a beautiful, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. You see, the selection process with Saul had been by lots, but instead of that, the Lord speaks directly to Samuel now. It's the only time in Scripture that's recorded that Samuel didn't really know exactly what the Lord's will was specifically before the Lord revealed it to him. He hasn't told him until that very moment. I think this highlights the absolute sovereignty of God, and God can choose to act when He wishes. The rejection of the seven, the first three are mentioned by name here. They're not chosen by stature. You know, the first one was very tall, and apparently the others were probably uh, not unlike him. This is obviously an allusion to Saul's own height. They weren't selected by seniority. Obviously, what's happening is the oldest, and then the older, and then the younger, and then the younger, and then the younger. Now, remember, that really mirrors what Jacob had done. The blessing that Jacob gave was not on the first son. It wasn't the second son. It wasn't the third son, but it was on the what? The unexpected for son Judah. He's the unlikely candidate. The word youngest actually means smallest. Insignificant. Not important enough to invite to the feast. But also they had to have somebody that would, would take care of the flock, you know. 
He was apparently untested in battle, even though he'd fought the lion and the bear. The others, we find out later, are in the army, least equipped at that time to lead men in battle. Hmm. And he comes from an obscure place, very much like Saul had come from the smallest of all clans. God's method is we see. He doesn't look on the outside, but he looks at the heart. That literally means that God does not look on the eyes, but he looks on the heart. What this says is it's a matter of integrity. He doesn't look on the outside. He looks at the core and determines whether the core matches the outside. Is this a man of integrity, a man that seeks my heart? It also reminds us that we don't see as God sees. Our eyes aren't like God's eyes. Our ways aren't like His ways. Not the eldest. He joins a long list of younger sons that God chose. Seth was not the oldest son. (laughs) Noah was not the oldest son. Isaac was not. Jacob was not. Joseph was not. Ephraim was not. Moses was not. And possibly, possibly Abraham was not. Hmm. This flies in the face of Jewish tradition. You see, it is the oldest that is to be blessed. It follows a pattern of other selectees, too. Rather, almost impossible circumstances. Samuel himself had been born in Hannah's later years when she was barren. So God has a way of overcoming. David's appearance was strikingly different. He was fair. He had a ruddy appearance, which probably means that he was not swarthy. He was probably didn't have dark black hair and eyebrows and hairy, um, like Esau maybe. But he was probably redheaded, maybe blonde, not sure. It says handsome, like, like, like Joseph was handsome. Winsome personality, 1 Samuel 16, 18, says that he attracted the people and he won everyone's confidence. But the fact of the matter is, this is not the basis upon which he was chosen. He wasn't chosen because he was handsome, because of his personality. Those enhanced his ability to lead, yes. But he was chosen, why? Because God had found his person examining his heart. The basis of his anointment was a heart issue. Anointed by God. There were three kinds of people that were anointed in this day and time. Prophets, priests, and who? Now kings. And it was done only by the authorization of the Lord. Exodus tells us that they're to take the finest of their spices, flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, a fragrant of cinnamon, half as much, 250, and a fragrant cane, 250, and casea 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, about a hen's worth. And they blend that together then to make the holy anointing oil, a perfumed mixture, the work of a perfumer, It shall be the holy anointing oil. This is what Samuel has put in his horn. And it symbolizes what? God's spirit, the joy of the Lord, and his sanctifying power to set apart that person for his work. So the spirit of the Lord came upon David, and we're told then in chapter 16, verse 14, that the spirit departed Saul, and it remained on David the rest of his life, even when he was sinful and disobedient. There were many witnesses there, unlike Saul's anointment, There weren't any witnesses there. Many witnesses there, but I don't think that they quite understand yet what is happening. Has Samuel announced what the significance of this is? No. He hasn't said this is going to be the new king. He's anointing. Now, the implication may be obvious, but I'm not so sure. (laughs) So, they may not know what this means yet. 
It becomes revealed a bit later in chapter 18 when Jonathan, the son, the, the king's own son, recognizes in David that he is the one that is going to supplant Saul. And they make this covenant together. And then Saul later discovers it and he sees it being treasonous in his son Jonathan and Saul later announces it in chapter 22. It then becomes obvious that David's anointment only then had been for him to become king. What did God see in David's heart? What did God see in David's heart? Well, he saw a man that sought God's heart. Very much like Joseph, very much like Joshua, very much like Samuel. And this was the key to David's success the rest of his life. Because remember, the evidence of seeking God's heart was to what? To do God's will. I think he also saw a good shepherd. Uh, 1 Samuel introduces in about a couple of chapters here three motifs for David. He comes in from the field as a shepherd, and later we're told in 2 Samuel 5 that he became the shepherd of Israel. We see him a little bit later than going to the court of Saul and doing what? Soothing Saul by the playing of the harp. He is an accomplished musician, we find in 2 Samuel 23. So he is a a shepherd and a, music, uh, a musician, and of course, when he stands against that nine-foot-six giant Goliath, he is a warrior, and he leads the army of Israel into war successively, battle out after battle. But I think the central thing, I think the central motif of David, he was a psalmist, he was all those things, was that he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd king. Shepherds lead their sheep, they don't drive them. Shepherds care for their sheep. They don't fleece them. Well, they do take the wool off. But you know what I mean, the word picture there. They know their sheep individually, and they love their sheep, and they care for their sheep. And we see this in David's Psalms. Sheep are defenseless, pe defenseless people. <laughs> well, yeah, Israel, the Israelite sheep are defenseless. They need guidance and protection, and David provided that. He protected these sheep of Israel just like he had fought the bear and the lion. He protected Israel by keeping it under the sheltered wings of the Lord, by reminding Israel that the Lord was their rock and their fortress. He was a shepherd that walked with the good shepherd and gave the good shepherd tribute in Psalm 23. And yes, even at David's lowest point, when his sin is revealed and made known through the prophet Nathan, how does Nathan rebuke David? He tells a parable. And what is the parable? The parable is the little ewe lamb that is owned by the poor man. And the rich man then has a dinner. Somebody comes, an important person comes to the rich man's house. And he goes and he takes the little ewe lamb. Instead of out of his own flock, which is large, he takes it from the poor man and slaughters it for the meal. And what does David say? That man should be put to death. And then Nathan looks at him and he says, you are that man. What was he saying? You're the shepherd that should have taken care of the sheep. And you took the ewe lamb Bathsheba from the poor man, from Uriah. So you see, in all of his life, David, I think, seeking the heart of God, was a shepherd. Most of the time, good. Let me, let me tie this together, then tie the scarlet thread and close it. Of course, we see here the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy and the for, unlikely fourth son from Genesis 49. The, the legal lineage of Jesus came through his adoptive father, Joseph, 
who was of the tribe of Judah. And that's found in which gospel? Matthew's gospel. Now, there's a lot of debate about the Lucan genealogy, but some think that the Lucan genealogy actually is the genealogy of Mary. And if that's the case, also her genealogy, and that's traced by Luke, goes back to Judah. So this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Judah, and the scepter will not depart from it, because then what we're going to find out in 2 Samuel 7 a little bit later is, God then establishes with David his what? Everlasting covenant. So you go from Genesis 49 to 1 Samuel 16, the anointment of King David, and then 2 Samuel 7, this covenant is made eternal and it is prophetic. The Messiah is going to come through that line. It's a messianic, his anointment is a messianic uh, foreshadowing of Christ because the anointed one, in fact, means what? Messiah in Hebrew and Christos in Greek. It is going to be fulfilled in the prophecies of Isaiah 9. We know there will be no end to the increase of his government or of the peace, of his peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then and forevermore. And two chapters later, then as the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom and the understanding and the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. And of course, we see this fulfilled. The Messiah comes through the root of Jesse, through the lineage of Joseph and probably Mary. And as he comes in the triumphal entry, they say, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes to do what? To bring in the kingdom of David. They don't know what they're saying there. They don't know the implication of that. But in fact, we do when we see what Paul says to Timothy. He then is king of kings and lord of lords coming out of the tribe of Judah to the anointed one whose heart sought the heart of God, not because of stature or beauty, but because he wanted to do the will of God.